0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 21 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Chris Power. Chris is the author of the short story collection, Mothers, and the novel, A Lonely Man. He joins me from his home in London. Hi, Ben. How's life in London
1: life in London is uh good I guess we're on the reverse to you so we're starting to uh, finally starting to warm up after what feels like a very long and cold uh, winter it's 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 blue skies there's a bit of spring spring freshness in the air but it's 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 heading in the right direction.
0: How's their recovery from COVID been
1: uh it's well we're in a kind of weird phase now where um, you know kind of you know we restrictions stopped um several weeks ago now um even though you know case numbers haven't dropped but everyone seems to be i shouldn't say everyone but the vast majority of people just kind of are acting as if it's all over now like uh, mask wearing is, has dwindled to to almost nothing and um and yet you know i know quite a lot of people who who have covid albeit thankfully you know mildly but um but yeah it's it's a weird sort of uh, like reverse phony war where you know the phony war like the war was on but there was no actual fighting going on whereas now there's like a, it's like peace has been declared but the war is actually continuing so it's a little strange it's a good uh, example of, of appearance versus reality I guess.
0: your wonderful novel a lonely man just came out in paperback it's about Robert, a writer living in Berlin, with his wife, two kids, and he meets this guy Patrick, who's a writer, and they meet at a bookshop. And he may or may not be followed by the Russians. Could you tell us a bit more about your book?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, from that from that premise, there's a there's a question in in Robert's mind um, after he meets Patrick, this guy who who says he was um, ghostwriting a Russian oligarch's memoirs, a Russian oligarch who had, who had been exiled, slash fled from Russia several years earlier and set up um, in London, as many, many oligarchs uh, have done over the last 20 or so years. Um, and this guy, Sergei Vanyashin has, um, has died. Uh, he was found hanging from a tree in the grounds of his of his estate. Um, and Patrick's story is that he was he was murdered and that the same people who killed him are on Patrick's trail. That's why he's fled London and come to Berlin and hoping to kind of like lose himself in the crowd. Um, and it's a kind of extraordinary story. And Patrick's a kind of a little um it seems a little wild and a little out of control. He's very drunk the first night that Robert meets him, um, and then they subsequently have have dinner because Robert sort of helps Patrick out of a out of a sticky situation, and and Patrick wants to thank him. Um, and his sort of jumpiness and his paranoia, Robert really doesn't know how to take it. It doesn't quite sort of seem genuine to him. But Robert is very intrigued by the story he has to tell because Robert is. Under contract to deliver a novel, which has been getting nowhere fast for, for quite a long time, um, and he sees potential in what um, in Patrick's story to to kind of you know extract that and use it for himself. You know, he he doesn't really care if it's if it's true or not. He's almost certain it's not true, um, but he sees an opportunity to uh, to exploit it really but doesn't go about that in a very um, above board way, which sort of sets up a tension between him and Patrick, because he wants to carry on seeing Patrick and kind of get this get this story from him, but um, but without coming clean about his his motives for doing so.
0: And like the protagonist, you're a writer, you've got two kids, and I know you're a frequent visitor to Berlin. Can you tell us a bit about more about your choice to set the novel there and to, I guess, base the character somewhat upon yourself i suppose
1: somewhat i suppose yeah i think uh, there are well it's, it's it's i guess when you start writing a book you kind of quickly um sort of model together you know um your own life with the with the fictional world you're creating and obviously that's done to different degrees and with different levels of of um transparency i suppose from from book to book talking about not just me but but writers in general um, you know whether it's the whole madame bovary same or the or the tolstoy kind of talking about how he'd split different parts of himself into all his characters um, but yeah there are some there are some blatant similarities between myself and robert like same hometown same number of kids same nationality of wife swedish um um, but those things were really just uh sort of jumping off points or just sort of useful sort of springboards i suppose um but along the way as the book became more about um you know these lines between fiction and reality um in terms of you know that at certain points robert at certain points we're, we're experiencing Patrick's earlier life in London working for this oligarch, but that's not actually coming from Patrick, that's coming filtered through, you know, it's the version Robert's writing of what he's learned from Patrick. Um, so there is this very uncertain line between, between what's, what's real and what's, and what's fictional. Um, and I think, in terms of the setting, like yeah, I, I love Berlin, and um, and it was obviously necessary for in terms of Patrick's character that he he wouldn't be hanging around in in London, where um, if he was fearing for his for his life, whether that's a cover story or whether that's real, he he he'd not want to not want to be there. Um, and you know, I, I know a lot of people. Um, Living in Berlin, I know um, uh, Berliners from from way back, the people I've been going to visit there regularly over the last 20 years um, are people who grew up there, are from there. But latterly, obviously, a lot of artists and uh, people in the creative industries from, from all over the world have kind of flocked to Berlin um, because it offered a... Um, you know, a cheaper place to live as their as their own cities perhaps became um, unaffordable for those in 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 the arts world certainly, um, and that's caused its own sort of tensions in the city. You know, it's kind of it's 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 a divided city, not not in the sense that it was you know throughout the Cold War, um, but in the sense of um, gentrification and and subjects like that. But that there are Touched on in a in a very glancing way in this book. This book isn't really engaging with that, but um, but it's certainly something that's that's very present. You know, every time you you go to the city, and my own my own relationship with it changed over the last twenty years. Because when I first went, I just wanted to go to techno clubs and you know not sleep for a weekend and then sleep on a plane home. Um, but over the time, I've got to know the city like during the daytime as well, like in all its different aspects, you know, it's got, it's got so much to, um, to offer and enjoy there and just a different speed and, and style of life. Um, and yeah, it also has this in fictional terms, it has this sort of hinterland of, um, you know, the spy novel, the espionage novel, that divided city in the same way that that, that Robert and Patrick are in, in a sense are a kind of like divided person. They're, they're, they're these people who could have been friends, I think, if they'd met in different circumstances, but but the situation that fate lands them in means they're in a kind of oppositional or exploitative relationship. So I think the city kind of, kind of spoke to that aspect of the novel as well.
0: At the current moment, I have to bring up Russia. Over the last few years, they've used polonium and Novichok to kill people on British soil, and now they're at war with the Ukraine and running disinformation campaigns. What's your take on that current situation?
1: Well, I think the war in Ukraine is is um, a tragedy for the people of Ukraine, and the kind of the cruelty and cynicism um, we've seen Putin showing there is, is just disgusting. Um, I'm going to kind of separate out sort of discussing the novel from the war because obviously I think the relevant things to do with the war are you know the reporting that people are doing on the ground there and the work that um Ukrainian artists and documentarians have done to kind of explain that country and that situation um, the kind of vector into into a lonely man To do with Russia was, yeah, it was very much to do with um, a kind of grim fascination I had with um, the death of Alexander Litvinenko uh, back in two thousand and six, carried out, you know, in London. This extraordinary poisoning with polonium, um, you know, this this very radioactive substance that left this this trail of radioactivity through through the center of the city. Um and then a number of of deaths subsequent to that. Um, like Ari- Alexander Peripolichny and obviously Boris Berezovsky in um in 2013, I think, um, found hanged in his his ex-wife's mansion in Ascot. Um someone who's kind of kind of figures in in a in a in a small way in the book you know part of that mise en scene that, that Sergei Vanyashin that the fictional oligarch in my book um is part of you know these sort of oligarchs who who did very well under uh, Yeltsin in the 90s and made a lot of money um that should have belonged to you know basically by buying up industries that should have belonged to the to the Russian people or the profits of which should have benefited the Russian people but which was all sort of um looted really by by um latterly by by Putin and his his circle and his favored oligarchs which is really any oligarch who who agreed that you know Putin was the the capo di capi or whatever um and 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 divvied up their share but you know the the situation with with oligarchs in, in this country in the UK um, is also down to the complicity of the the British government, successive British governments from I think from John Major in the nineties onwards. Like every successive administration has has you know welcomed in um, Russian money. With, with open arms knowing where it came from you know knowing that this was this was money that that should have stayed in Russia and been benefiting the Russian sovereign wealth fund or paying pensions whatever it is um, you know welcomed these billions and billions of, of pounds and dollars in and helped um, Russian business people you know set up shell shell companies because of Britain's kind of um, offshore, rules you know kind of tax havens um you know britain in the in the post imperial kind of uh period has um has specialized in in you know taking blood soaked and ill-gotten money and uh and laundering it really um it's one of our you know national biggest national industries although we obviously don't uh, talk about it in those terms um so uh so I hope I'm I hope I'm Brit bashing as much as I'm Russia bashing in this. But um but yeah, that that kind of um you know the auda- the audacity of that Litvinenko killing and and the mystery surrounding subsequent killings, you know, like unexplained deaths, very strangely conducted police investigations, um inconclusive uh coroner's uh reports and judgments. It's very sort of um I guess kind of inviting um, world for for uh, for a novelist because because there's so much uncertainty and ambiguity there. There's so many spaces you can kind of get into and and posit your own sort of ideas about. Um, and indeed, you know, when I the week I started writing the book was the same week that the um, but the Salisbury poisonings occurred, the the Novichok, the uh the Skripals, the father and daughter, who were found slumped on this bench having touched, I think, their their doorknob, which had been coated in this incredibly powerful nerve agent. They were very lucky to survive. And a couple of months later, a woman, Dawn Sturgis, died because her partner had found um
0: a bottle of perfume. perfume bottle.
1: Yeah. That's right, found it in a in a in a skip in a, in a dumpster and uh, and it presented this to her at a gift she she'd sprayed it on and and then she um, she sadly died um, and you know this was like an ongoing thing in fact one of the reasons why I, I set the book in 2014 just so, so I'd had it I'd have it as a as a sort of cutoff because I figured these things were gonna were gonna continue it seemed you know, very likely that, that Vladimir Putin was not going to suddenly stop or, or be reasonable or, you know, or even give up power. He's just going to go on and on for as long as he can. Um, so I kind of wanted a hard stop so I knew what things I was talking about and what things I wasn't talking about. So sort of, in fact, the Russian uh, invasion or sort of clandestine invasion of the, of the Donbass in Ukraine Um is one of the sort of more recent events in my book, you know that's sort of just that's just happened recently. Um, but I was uh, I was I was pretty certain for pessimistic reasons that 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 was going that it was going to sort of stay news, you know that these these sorts of events were going to continue as sadly they have.
0: It feels like in terms of writing, I suppose, that perhaps this whole Russia situation is gonna create a bit of a renaissance with the spy novel?
1: Possibly so, I guess, um, I guess, you know, it was really interesting seeing someone like um, John le Carré kind of in 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 what turned out to be at the, the, the sort of end of his career kind of turning his attention to, um, you know, extraordinary rendition in a book like A Most Wanted Man, um, and, and finding, you know, I guess finding the, um, what's the best way to phrase it, the injustices or the the sort of geopolitical cynicism of, um, you know, of America and, and Britain and, and other nations um, that continued, that sort of like moved their focus. Yes, of course, that the sort of the cold war was a was a um long standing go to and presented such yeah fertile fertile ground for uh for spy rises certainly but i think um you know there's 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 a lot to be written certainly about about yes about russia over the last 20 years and 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 now um but also you know what's been going on in the in the middle east for the last for the last, well, almost a generation now. Um, And and longer, obviously. I know it didn't start in sort of, you know, with with the Gulf War, but um, but yeah, it seems like there's always something um, terrible going on for people to write about. I should say that I'm coming at this sort of from outside that genre. I've probably read more John Le Carré since um, his name got mentioned so often in, in response, in reviews of my book has um, probably encouraged me to read more of his books than I had before I, before I wrote this. In fact, in some ways, I was kind of, um, I had an idea of, of a John le Carré novel in my mind, a sort of platonic ideal that I was, in some parts of the book, sort of writing towards. But I think it was quite helpful for me that I didn't really know what I was talking about because I wasn't really trying to write like an espionage thriller like I wanted my book to be thrilling I knew that I always wanted it to to have that that sort of characteristic um but at the same time I, d- I didn't have a great knowledge of 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 thrillers so I wasn't sort of um feeling like I had to hit certain you know beats or certain pulses um Basically, I didn't know what, really what I was doing. I think that's I think that's how I'm the, the more honest way of phrasing it. But I found that quite um, quite helpful or quite quite liberating.
0: <laughs> One of the touchstones in the book is Roberto Bolaño. At the beginning, the two authors go into a bookshop. They pick up the same copy of Antwerp. Um, I know you also love Javier Marias, who I love as well. Did you have any other conscious influences writing the book?
1: Well, I wrote a, um, uh, I wrote like a 120 word description of the of the book when um, I'd sold a, a short story collection here in the UK, and the publisher had also bought a novel, even though there wasn't a novel. And I'd said I didn't have an idea for a novel. I just said, yeah, I'd like to write one. Um, so they were like, great, we'll we'll take it um which was interesting an interesting um motivational force um but when it a few months after that when it came time to um submit put my short stories on submission to American publishers um my agent was like they're going to know it's a 2 book deal and you should um you have to say what the novel is now because otherwise it'll just look kind of ridiculous. And I'd, I'd had this, this idea that I'd been kicking around for a while by then. Um, and so I wrote this 120 word like description, almost, it wasn't even the whole story, but it was like what you'd read on the back of a book. So it kind of set it up and it gave some sort of atmospheric pointers. And when I was sort of drafting that, um, I'd written these two names on it. I'd written Enrique Martín and I'd written Patrick Modiano. Um, And Enrique Martín is a short story by Roberto Bolano that's in his book Last Evenings on Earth. Um, And it's a it's a fantastic short story that I kind of it's it's about as as many of his stories are it's about the relationship between a um two two poets um who have this kind of ongoing feud um and just just occasionally run into each other over a number of years and it's kind of the narrator um is his recurring alter ego um bellano uh who's in, in in arturo bellano who's in lots of his uh short stories in some of his novels. Um, and he 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 has this kind of kind of obsession with this figure, Enrique Martin, who he thinks is a terrible poet and he thinks is a kind of ridiculous man. Um, but it's sort of it sort of shifts along its way into this really moving um, really moving story about kind of artistic failure and um, and, and despair um and i i hadn't read it for a while when i when i was when i was thinking about this novel but i had read it several times over the years um and i just my memory of its atmosphere which i don't think is 100 accurate to its actual atmosphere when i went back to i re re-read it several times since but at the same time it was still really that even that difference was quite useful to me but but my memory of its atmosphere was what I wanted part of this book to kind of have when this book was still quite inchoate but I, I knew kind of how I wanted it to to feel and I wanted to ally that with the way that um the Patrick Modiano novels that I've read feel where there's this sort of um like those are novels which which kind of in summary or on the surface are Sort of detective novels or mystery novels, and yet at the same time, there's something sort of stranger or more esoteric kind of going on in there. That the, the nature of the investigation seems to change along the way, and it becomes much more about about um, the the narrator's own sort of, um, I guess, their their sort of internal psychology. Um, so there was something about that blend. I mean, Bolano obviously is also an author who sort of, um, who, who likes to adopt different genre kind of elements in his writing. I think just because he was, you know, a, a voracious reader and, and just loved absorbing all this stuff and didn't see the need, I guess, for, for um, or I guess his vision of literature was something that absorbed all these, all these things, whether it's the, the horror movies or gothic fiction or or crime or um modernism whatever it is it all gets kind of like chewed up and and turned into something new which is something i find really exciting and really um um really yeah inspirational i suppose and kind of like the sort of writing that i want to read is is something that that doesn't worry about any of that stuff it just it's just worried about 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 being good and working line by line and page by page
0: Hmm. um with Bolaño I want to ask about um I'm sure we'll discuss him in your top 10 but how do you feel about the more recent posthumous releases from him
1: yeah pretty uh pretty conflicted I mean I I actually I, I I wrote a piece which sadly hasn't been printed I don't know if it ever will be printed now but I I wrote a a review of Cowboy Graves which is his most recent I'm doing scare quotes for listeners uh his most recent book uh which I think it's three novellas or it's called three novellas I mean these are not one of them's like I think 12 pages long so just just calling a novella is like to start with but um it's these three stories that I think were written in like two of them, sort of mid nineties, one of them um, maybe around the time he was starting on 2666, which was his last, the last novel he was, he, he sort of, well, he died just before it was published, but the last one he sort of saw to publication. Um, and uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was happy to read them but at the same time, the fact that someone now could walk into a bookshop, you know, 20 years um, after Bolaño died, 19 years, and uh, and be confronted with a load of books that to them is just like, oh, who's this Robert, Roberto Bolaño guy? Maybe I'll check him out. And the chances are they're going to pick up a book that, you know, wasn't published during his lifetime, that he didn't intend for publication or publication. That he'd tried to get published in the eighties, and everyone had rejected it. Um, and you know, you're gonna, you might, you might, that might be your your taste of Roberto Bellani, and you'll go, "Well, this 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 guy's not not up to much." Because I think the problem is they sort of they have, uh, and I mean, they the sort of executors of his estate, which is something I went into, into in that piece. I won't go into it here because it, it gets into the weeds. But there's been this sort of battle over his estate. And um, he's got a different sort of agent took over and have pushed it in a different direction. And they're certainly trying to like ring whatever money they can from, you know, the sort of scrapings of his hard drive. But the really offensive thing about it is that it's presented with a sort of mock academic kind of um, framework around it. Like they'll have a note on the text and they'll say... Where these particular papers were found, oh, this is written on this type of typewriter, so we can date it to then, and blah blah blah, which is fine, and w- which I would find interesting interesting, and and right if it was in like a sort of university's holdings or something like that, but the fact that they're being printed as sort of um, you know another another masterpiece from the from the desk of of, of Bolano is um, is sort of. Well, it's it's laughable. Let's put it that way. Um, I mean, I think the introduction to in Cowboy Graves talks about them, the radical incompleteness of these texts, which they cite as a sort of, you know, as a sort of prime requisite of uh, of Belaño's fiction. Whereas really, these are just these are scraps. These are unfinished pieces. They are sketches, or they're things that he, you know put aside for whatever reason was superseded by other stuff. I mean, Woes of the True Policeman, which contains some really good writing is, um, you know, which came out maybe 2013 or something like that. I'm probably way off on that date. Um, Maybe it was 2011 is a sort of earlier version of the part about Amalfitano in 2666, which is sort of really interesting seeing what he kept and what he, what he, what he junked um, but at the same time it's very sort of it sort of overlays your your memories of, of that 2666 is one of my f- favorite books and I think and it's just an incredibly uh, important work of fiction if you're talking sort of fiction of the last 50 years or whatever um, and it's kind of odd that this sort of lesser work or this or this um this sort of sketch towards it in some cases has probably overlaid people's memories of of the more important book because they've read it more recently or whatever it was only when I went back to 2666 um during lockdown and read it again that I kind of remembered what was in that book and what was in the other book because you're talking about the same character but he's sort of rewritten elements of it so very long answer to a very simple question, but I think it's a pretty. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a. It's a shame how he's been treated. I think it should be. I'd like to see it more clearly demarcated. You know, the books that are the kind of um, the, uh, the canon. The canon. Yeah, that's such a such a complicated word, isn't it? But yeah, <laughs> that, at least the stuff that was um, that he, you know, published during during the author's lifetime and the, and the stuff that's been that's yeah. been thrown up later most of which not all but most of which is is just yeah not up to the standard of what what actually came out you know those novels that that the spirit of science fiction and um uh the third reich and you know third reich's like one of the better ones actually by by quite a long way but some of the stuff that he tried to get published and couldn't uh like the skating rink um, like during his lifetime, you can kind of see why at the same time, and it 's obvious why they would then publish it when Roberto Bellio became roberto bolio but mm. but it's not yeah it's not it 's not the same standard, which yeah largely doesn 't matter, but if someone's gonna gonna pick a book off the shelf, you kind of want want it to be savage detectives or last evenings on earth or two six 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 um a lot of the a lot of the the more recent ones are seductively thin as well. So you think, oh, I'll just I'll start with that one because I can read it in a couple of days. Um, it's not going to repay that investment.
0: That's right. I think the I guess part of the argument with Bolano is that he does create a universe within his fiction, and even these like little fragments participate in that in that kind of universe. But yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that the more recent stuff especially the last few have been pretty terrible and i think should probably be yeah in a university archive or something like that but not for mainstream fiction
1: yeah i think that's right you know even though the spirit of science fiction has this final section about like bathhouses in mexico city which is fantastic and which was i think printed on its own in the new yorker and kind of really worked in that in that context but the actual book that it that it completes is weirdly like it's like 170 pages or something and it took me days and days and days to read it there's just something about the prose that just just is very leaden which is just not not him and i'm sure he wouldn't he wouldn't you know want that to be um but you know he doesn't he doesn't get a say so that's, that's the way right. it is
0: can i ask uh, are you working on something at the moment you want to tell us about
1: uh, I am. I, I started a, a new novel in uh, in January, um, which is an idea I, I had back when um, back when I was writing A Lonely Man. Um, so I've had the benefit of, of kicking the idea around in my head for um, for quite a long time before I started writing, which I've actually found is um, quite useful for me. Like I sort of um, more and more I've been uh like planning things which I never really used to do like when I was writing the short stories that that went into my first book mother's um I would kind of um, jump around both within stories and and between stories like as I was writing them um to an extent not 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 sort of to a to a manic degree but 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 I wouldn't sort of write from beginning to end. Whereas with The Lonely Man, I did actually, because there was about a year between um, having the idea and actually being able to start working on it. I'd actually thought about it quite a lot by that stage and I've been taking notes here and there. And so when it came to it, I realized I could actually sort of plot out um, just sort of chapter by chapter or section by section kind of roughly what was going to happen sort of being open to things changing along the way or developing but but I kind of had that structure so I could actually just you know start writing each day and go okay this is the bit I'm writing now this is this is what's happening in this bit which I found really useful especially for a for a larger work it was the first time I'd written anything of this length um and so that sort of continued with this new book where I wrote a kind of 3,000 word outline of like the first section sort of so more like a sort of like screenwriting thing where you kind of yeah you write a sort of not
0: well yeah almost
1: almost yeah almost a treatment I mean I was I was always a bit sort of um Uncertain about what those th- those terms meant, or I kind of thought, well, I'm just going to like write the whole thing. Like that's my that's 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 how it works, right? Or that's how you figure it out. But I was able to sort of go almost beat by beat. Um, so who knows? But maybe the next book I'll be writing like fifty thousand words just about what it's about before I actually start. But but sooner or later you do have to start. And then I I I just realized because it had been quite a while since I wrote anything new. I mean, in 2021, I wrote, like, one short story. It was like a sort of 11,000-word story. Um, But other than that, I was just doing sort of final revisions on A Lonely Man, and then then I had that coming out. So I was doing, you know, press stuff around it and writing articles, um, and I was doing some teaching. So I'd, I'd, I'd been away from my fiction writing desk not that I actually have a separate desk; that would be great, but I don't. But I'd been away from my fiction writing uh, for quite some time, so I had forgotten how bad um, my first drafts are. So I had a, I had a great, a great crisis kind of end of January after I've been working for a month on this new book, um, just because you know the word count was going up, but they were all terrible words. But I just had to. Um, had to remind myself that, that, is, that that's how it always is for me. I just need to get something down that I can then go back and uh, go back and attack. But I'm kind of keen for it to be the whole thing that I get down, even though I've got an urge now to go back to the, you know, I'm sort of 30,000 words in and I wanna go back to the start and just sort of start rewriting. But I've got to, I think I've got to push through to the end of the terrible first draft so, so I can see the whole thing. Entirely, and then and then get into revising, which for me is by far the more uh, enjoyable part of it.
0: That was a long answer, but you didn't tell me anything about your book. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give us a couple of clues <laughs> yeah, about, about things, uh,
1: that, about that, That's very telling. Very <laughs> telling. Um, all I'll say is that um, it's about uh, it's about a relationship between an actor and a playwright who who reunites after, after many years apart. Uh, and the playwright has this, this sort of unusual proposition for the actor.
0: Okay. Sounds good. All right. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened up the doors of literature for you?
1: Well, um, So one that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I've spoken a little bit about this before. It's not, it's not very fashionable answer, but I guess the, the book was, uh, was Lord of the Rings, which, um, that was the book that really made me want to, want to write, um, which I read. Actually, I mean, I read it when I was eight and it took me a year to read it. I actually finished it in Australia, um, in Palm Beach, New South Wales, um, and, yeah it just it just that that whole sort of like creation of a world, um, the the scope of it um, kind of blew me away and uh and it's funny i, I sort of I revisited it I read it to my daughters over lockdown um, and I hadn't read it. I read it maybe like either two or three times when I was a a kid slash teenager. And then I hadn't read it since. Um, and I really enjoyed reading it to the girls, albeit I was kind of, I would stop every so often and say that, you know, that there are, there are women in this world. They just, <laughs> they just never mentioned. And if it was rewritten today, then hopefully that would be addressed because it is like super male. It's just so male, um, but they love the, they loved the story um and and i guess it was yeah it was it was it was uh it was interesting going back to it in, ter- in in terms of how it made me feel about about writing when i when i when i first read it um i think it kind of you know the, the books i read as a teenager that were, were gateways were again a very unfashionable one was on the road jack kerouac that was that really kind of um that spawned a massive amount of terrible poetry from me, um, but was something I found like just so so exciting. Um, you know, I think linguistically and in terms of the rhythms of the of the prose. But I think the more the more lasting one, the, the one that's that that I still think is as brilliant today, or even more brilliant today than I as as I did when I first read it, is um, Jesus Son by Dennis Johnson. Um, which is a story cycle about this this guy fuckhead who's a who's a junkie um, who's sort of in recovery and he's telling these stories about his about his um, dissolute life in like early seventies uh, Iowa um, and I, I I picked it up off, off a bookshop table when I was. Eighteen, just when it had come out in in hardback, and I hadn't heard of him, I hadn't heard of it. But I instantly clocked Jesus Son as a as a Velvet Underground reference from the song "Heroine," which was like my my favorite song at the time, um, and remains it pretty much. Um, and I just, yeah, that book just completely rewired my brain. I just thought the writing was was so brilliant, like, so funny, and so. Um, interesting and so weird um and just just compelling you know just just pulled you along and along um so that one's really really stayed with me like it's it's you know now i i teach some of the stories from that book um uh, and i i press it on on as many people as i can um that said it was quite um unhelpful to my writing because i was so under its spell that i that I tried to write stories like, like Jesus' sons. So I wrote lots of stories about you know junkies in midwestern America um, during my twenties, which was just not, not good in any in any way, shape or form. Um, but uh, but I do think it taught me a kind of sense of how I wanted my writing to sound, which isn't to say. I wanted it to sound like Dennis Johnson's because his style in that book is very distinctive and, and um, it's not something you would want to um, duplicate. But um, but just that sense of how prose can have a very, I guess, powerful kind of rhythm or, or current running through it. Um, and that doesn't have to be like one set rhythm like like but but the writing i really love tends to have a distinctive rhythm to it whether it's um you mentioned javier marias earlier on he's someone via i guess margaret joel costa's um translations which as far as i can tell are, are incredible um he has that same kind of thing you know it just has this 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 pull to it completely different style him and dennis johnson but th- th- that 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 sense of you just getting immersed in the in the prose is um is just as strong um so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna leave it at those three three gateways
0: okay do you have any carte blanche authors like authors who you would buy their book regardless
1: um yeah i mean well like living authors or yeah. uh, or just living yeah authors. living authors let's see um Yeah, Gwendolyn Riley, um, incredible writer, and My Phantoms, which came out last year, is is her best novel. Yeah, I think First Love and My Phantoms, her last two novels, are her. I, I just think she's getting better and better. Like she's been writing, since, she's been publishing since she was in her early twenties, I think. Um, but these latest two books, in particular, are just stunning. So I can't wait to see what she does next. Um, Rachel Cusk, same. Um, I mean, she's gone through several phases in her, in her career, but I think um, the Outline Trilogy and, um, and Second Place, the book she published last year, uh, and also Coventry, her sort of uh, essay collection from 2019, all stunning. I think she's such a brilliant thinker and, and writer. Um, Katie Kitamura, who wrote uh, novel Intimacies um, prior to that A Separation. That was her, her third and fourth novels, I think. Again, I'm blown away by, by those. And, and, and that voice, she has this sort of very sort of muted, but powerful kind of prose style, which, um, which yeah, I just want to read more of. Um, and uh, Fernanda Melchor, uh, Mexican writer who um, wrote a book called Hurricane Season which was um, this stunning kind of um, just this this sort of torrential account of this this murder in a in a village in Veracruz, this Mexican state' um, that's sort of divided between I think six or seven different characters uh, they're sort of like, streams of consciousness um really powerful like com- like a real sort of horrific roller coaster ride of a book and she followed that up with uh, paradise which came out um in the uk just just uh, a couple of months ago um and that's that's stunning too it's like a, it's a smaller sort of more concentrated book than hurricane season it's incredibly unpleasant but it's also very powerful like the thing she does with language and via her translator Sophie Hughes um is really stunning it's kind of like particularly with hurricane season you know the first time you read it it's like a sort of cacophony and it's kind of just this this sp- sprawl of kind of misogyny and anger and violence um but then when you reread it you sort of in, in my case it took a reread for me to see just how carefully and skillfully put together it is i think she's a she's a stunning writer so yeah they're all um they're all writers i would i would buy on site
0: okay um what are you currently reading and what are you looking forward to
1: i'm currently reading um a novel called the war for gloria by atticus lish um which i'm uh reviewing actually um but uh i i pitched it as a review because i because i'd picked it up and started reading and i just really really loved the voice um and i'm gonna i'm gonna read his his first novel preparations for the next life i think it's called which i i haven't read i know people who have read it and they've all raved about it so um yeah, I think he's got a really uh interesting style, just very um a great maker of images, fantastic similes, very involving kind of explorations of of character, uh, particularly I guess in, in this in the War for Glory, this this young man, Corey, who's at the center of it. Um, but also just just off center. Um there's Gloria herself, his mother, and and he sort of he sort of shuttles between these two characters, and is kind of equally capable of of, of exploring and bringing both to life. I think it's really as well as evoking like uh, this neighborhood in Boston where it's set, kind of incredibly well. So um so yeah, I think it'll be a a, a positive review. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's he's super interesting. What was the other part of the question? Was it what I'm looking forward to?
0: Yeah. Are there books coming up um, you're looking forward to?
1: That's a good question. I'm I'm actually doing a load of um uh, interviewing at, at literary festivals uh, like over the summer, so at Hay and then at Edinburgh. So I've got a stack of like 12 books or more, more like 15 books that, uh, that I need to read for that. So that, my, my reading is quite prescribed. There's a bunch of those I'm looking forward to. Um, I am looking forward to uh, Jeff Dyer has got a new book on, on Late Style, um, which I'm very keen to read.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Chris Power. This episode is brought to you by the reanimated corpse of Vladimir Lenin and the United Soviet Republic. Coming soon. Dosvedanya. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Chris's top 10.
1: I am ready to move on to my top 10. Um, but I don't really have a top 10, Ben. You're gonna be uh disgusted with me. I was trying to do this and I was just like, I just can't do it. I mean, I I can give you a um I can give you a shifting top 10 that sort of dissolves uh into a bit of a mist towards the end. How about that? Perfect. And I'm not gonna and 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 these are not um this is not a graduated 10. Okay, this is just it's just 10 books <laughs> that I love. Um, and if you talk to me tomorrow, they'll be slightly different. And if you talk to me next week, they'll be slightly different, albeit there'll be a few that would like always be on there. So, um, so here we go. We've got, do you want me to talk a bit about the book? I'm just going to list them. Maybe we can, yeah, like, we go we can, through and
0: like you can talk a little bit about them as you go. And yeah,
1: okay, well, some of them I won't talk about because they're just. I think, A, I wouldn't be able to do them justice and B, or you can just not talk about them in in brief, I guess. And they've been talked about till the cows come home. But um, Under the Volcano, Malcolm Lowry, um, which I've read twice and I heard someone on a podcast say that... um, but really you have to read it at least three times till I fully get it. it's brilliant. So I'm I'm, I'm eager for the, uh, I can kind of believe it. and I'm eager to, to go back. Um, 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. Um, I think uh, there's, I think lately there's a weird sort of um, opposition seems to have crept into uh, the Bolaño discourse where it's kind of like, almost like you have to pick like savage detectives or 2666 um because they're seen as sort of i guess different sides of his project or because 2666 has a reputation as such a dark book um which is understandable because it has this you know it has these it's five parts and the part about the crimes is this is this you know it's it's a 900 page novel and it has this 350 page section which just sort of um very uh almost robotically sort of details these these murdered women in this fictional city of um of Santa Teresa which is based on the real city of Ciudad Juárez and these and these these murders which which occurred there throughout the 90s almost all of which are unsolved and i think um in Bolaño's book, I think there are like 113, like 112 murders and one suicide. I think it's, it's around that. And, it, and you get like all of them. It's just the discovery of the bodies and what's been done to them and the state they're in. So almost like a sort of coroner's report. Um, and that does obviously kind of overpower the book or it, it's in, your, in my memory when I went back to read it um, in lockdown my memory of it was, was largely of that, of that part. Like I remembered the other sections and the characters from them, but it was the part about the crimes, the atmosphere of that part had sort of become the atmosphere of the whole book. And I was really surprised when I went back and reread it, at how, how funny parts of it are, how, how eerie parts of it are, how, how it really has sort of, it operates on all levels, like like great literature, like really great literature does you know in the sense that when you're when you're in it it's like the most important thing you've ever read and it's like just nothing else exists outside it. it's just you and this book um and 2666 is very much that for me i also love savage detective i think it's an incredible novel and and a sort of um and yeah maybe maybe it's a better sort of way in i don't know maybe that's a better one to read to read first albeit then it's more it's more fragmented so it's a kind of it's it's more sort of it's probably got more joy in it but it's also more a more fragmentary reading okay. experience but anyway they're both great just people should read them both um so we've got uh we've got two right um Moby Dick is like just one of the greatest books I've ever read and um and I kind of go back to certain sections of it like quite a lot just because I think Melville was uh, just the things he was doing in that book were just so extraordinary I think and the kind of the fun he was having while he was writing it I mean it was almost the last fun he had he had a very miserable life following 40 years I think but um, but the sort of joy with which he's he seems to really know that he's writing just a stunning work of literature that that is unlike anything else like even as he's writing it which is an incredibly sort of exciting to read. Um, Thomas Bernhard is uh, one of my favorite writers and I could pick uh, a number of his books. And I, I would over over a course of days, but uh, I think for this list, I'm going to put uh, Gathering Evidence, which is his, um, his memoir um, or sort of compiled. I think it was published as sort of, it was four or five, like quite slim volumes that are put together into a sort of almost 400 page um, book um, that that include many sort of Bernhardian traits, his sort of uh, very black humor his his vituperation um, but also kind of I think really underline the fact that you know he's often called a misanthropic writer and I think that's quite um um, not unfair I, I just think it's not entirely accurate and i think getting gathering evidence you really see how his sort of misanthropy i wrote an essay about it once talked about it not being a misanthrope but being a kind of disappointed humanist and i think you see that in in gathering evidence particularly in this sort of account of 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 his hometown in austria being bombed um during the war and the sort of death and destruction he saw there which I think you know really sort of marked him um and I think he never kind of recovered his sort of vision of humanity never recovered from that but at the same time there's this tension in his work where he is sort of you're sort of angry with humans for not for so often not being you know what they could be or not being kinder or not being um better which um which does give Burn incredibly Funny and vicious uh, prose. Um, I'm going to say uh, *Villette* by Charlotte Brontë is is, which I read. I'm not sure why I read it. I don't think I was studying it, but I can't imagine why else. Mostly, when I was like a teenager, Victorian novels I read them because I was studying them and uh, and not not out of choice, but um, for whatever reason, I read *Villette*. Um, and it's just—it's just an amazing, incredibly strange book with this sort of psychedelic episode in the middle of it, and running throughout it, just the the extent to which the narrator is um, unreliable is just kind of off the charts. It's really—it's um, a really stunning piece of work. Um, *Mrs Dalloway* by Virginia Woolf. That is what that was a set text for me at school. Um, and was one of those moments that I think you have when you're studying literature at school and, and the teacher's kind of going, well, this represents this and this is that, this is that. And you're kind of like, well, wait, does every schoolboy and schoolgirl thinks, Well, wait, is that was that really all intended? Like no one can just, you know, do all that stuff deliberately. Um because Virginia Woolf could, because she was a genius. Um, Jude the obscure by Thomas Hardy, which um, which is just so bleak. It just, I, I just, it's it's almost funny how bleak it is, but it's um, it's just a stunning, stunning book, and I love the way Hardy writes about um, landscape in a way that sort of. Where it does become, and it's a cliche to say, but it does become a character in its own right, right in its own right, and it does reflect or kind of um, deepen the psychology of the characters, but not in a sort of pathetic fallacy way, but more in the sense that you kind of these characters are kind of formed by their by the environment, by in this case the, the natural environment. Um, and the pig slaughtering scene is just one of the most like grim things I've I've ever read. Um what are we on? Is that six? Is that six books? No, seven books. You yeah. got seven books. Um okay, I'm gonna go for uh, some untitled collection of uh like late checkoff, any stories from like 1888 to, to, to 1904 so we'll go for, for a bunch of those just because he's yeah I mean probably the writer that I have return to um the most and and um, constantly sort of finding new things in o- often literally finding new things because he wrote so many stories that it feels like you are never quite on top of of everything he produced um and I'm gonna say party going by Henry Green, which i've only read once um and i didn't read it that long ago. I read it maybe four four years ago or so no maybe five um and i just i think he's a he's an incredible writer i mean he just writes such unusual sentences and his 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 writings so sort of um I really love the way he he doesn't editorialize on his his characters. You know, you're just there, kind of alongside them, and you kind of have to figure out what's going on um, between these people. I, I I find that a lot of writers kind of tell a bit too much, uh, or kind of. Um, just explain what, what's what's happening for the reader a bit too much, which I can understand the the, the sentiment, but sometimes um, I like writers that kind of do too little of that rather than doing too much of it. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna forgive the uh, the too little uh, more easily. Um, In a strange room by Damon Galgut is uh, probably one of the most moving books I've ever read I think it's I think it's absolutely stunning Uh, and kind of I don't know is it under underrated I'm not sure it definitely should have won the booker prize the year it was shortlisted um but uh yeah that's that I, I feel I I feel like when I mention it to people they're like oh I should check that out I'm not really aware of it so that's my my anecdotal reason for saying it underrated or, t- or too little known perhaps all right one more okay well, we mentioned maria so i'm going to have uh tomorrow in the battle think on me which i think um is just him at, at the at the at the peak um i think that book and a heart so white which i came out i think they came out in like maybe 93 and 94 i think they're just like my my favorite two of his novels i think they're they're just stunning i mean the idea that um you know you can sort of s- start from this this a single incident and it just just grows and grows and grows and grows kind of folds out, and folds out and folds out and folds out and folds out until it's just it it covers so much ground partly because his his narrators are so kind of um internally loquacious you know one thought just constantly leads to another um like a, this sort of rhizomatic kind of structure that i just find yeah just just compelling it's very different to to how i write like i don't think of myself as a very wordy writer i tend to stay on the kind of outside of my characters whereas marius is like right in the sort of cortex of his um but i just i just i'm, I'm overcome with uh With admiration and just lost in it when I'm when I'm reading it, Um, I think it just shows that uh, you know there's a lot of quite there's a lot of fiction around these days that is you know the thoughts of the main character or an authorial sort of um, stand-in of a main character, and and I don't have anything against that. I just think it's I think it's hard to do well. I think Marius does it so well because all the thoughts he has are really interesting which sounds a simplistic way to say it, but if you're going to have, you know, X thousand thoughts in a novel, then obviously the novels that have the more interesting thoughts in them are going to be the better ones. And he, he, he does that, like, to, to such a stunning, to such stunning effect. But, um, yeah, I'm putting him on the list.
0: Perfect. That is a fantastic list. Thank you for that.
1: You're welcome. Um, I think, having said I wouldn't do it, I appear to have done it. You've you've, you've bent my arm, Ben. You're very uh, very very slyly manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, we should probably wrap it up. Before we do, can you tell us where we can find you online and where we can order your brilliant book, A Lonely Man?
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. You can find me online at uh, Chris underscore Power on Twitter and on. Uh, instagram chris john power or one word um normally uh certainly on twitter or it, it's pretty it's pretty literature focused um you can order my book um well i don't know i mean well you can order it certainly from um favor you can order it from bookshop.org you can order it ideally from your local independent bookshop um yeah other other options are available but they don't need they don't need advertising from me
0: yes i got it from my local bookshop and i got a nice hard cover it's great i really highly recommend this book it really it did something for me i just loved it one of my top picks so far for the year so great job
1: thanks Ben. i really appreciate that and thanks for this it's been fun talking to you
0: Thanks once again to Chris Power. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode next week.